This and the following two lessons in our Patriarch Study cover the biblical account of the life of Joseph, the fourth of the great patriarchs of Israel, who suffered humiliation. Many have lauded Joseph as a type, a picture of Christ. Like Jesus, Joseph was dearly loved by his father, but rejected and cruelly treated by his brothers. Ultimately, both were exalted. But before their exaltation, they endured intense and unjust suffering. They were both betrayed by being sold. Jesus died while Joseph entered a kind of death during his years of suffering in Egypt. Surely one of Jesus Christ's greatest humiliations was setting aside many of his divine privileges in order to become human. Paul says it this way in Philippians 2. He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. One Christian writer has said that we might imagine Christ lowering himself to become human by considering what we would give up to become a worm. Think of it. The one through, who the, through, through whom the universe was made, the very one who continues to hold all things together, was willing to lay naked on a cross and take all of our horrific sins upon himself. Now, according to the New Testament, those of us who belong to Christ should expect to share in his humiliation and suffering. As you know, our suffering takes various forms. It may be the mental anguish that we experience over the terrible consequences of sin we see around us, sometimes in our own families. It may be physical hardships, for some, even torture. In some parts of the world, a Christian's humiliation may involve a disgraceful public parading through the streets. But for many, it may simply be stooping to love the unlovely. Either way, God intends to use our suffering for our good and for his glory. Paul wrote that Christians rejoice in suffering because our suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. This is exactly the process that took place in Joseph's life. God prepared Joseph for greatness by taking him down a long road of suffering. That suffering built him into a man with tremendous character, ready to lead a nation with humility and great wisdom. Now let's remember that Genesis 35 ended with Isaac's death and burial. 
In chapter 37, verse 1, the storyline resumes, and we learn that following Isaac's death, Jacob remained in Mamre, near Hebron, where his father had lived. Jacob is now the patriarch of the family, and the story shifts to tell us about two of his sons, Joseph and later Judah. Now, we're told Joseph was only 17 at this time that this account unfolds. Later in chapter 21, we learn he was 30 when he became the ruler of all Egypt. Chapter 40 ends two years short of that time, so we can add it all up and say that these events we're covering in this lesson, chapters 37 through 40, as they pertain to Joseph, occurred over a period of 11 years. Now, we've seen that Genesis has had a running theme of conflict between brothers, and that theme continues. We learn here that Joseph's brothers hated him. Three reasons are given. One, he brought back a bad report to his father about the four sons of his father's maidservant wives. Secondly, his father gave him an ornate robe. It was literally translated, a coat of extremities, meaning that the sleeves extended beyond the hands and that it was long enough to cover the knees. The implication is that the person who wore it didn't work. But third, and most importantly, Joseph's father favored him over all his other sons. Favoritism is another theme we've also seen in Genesis. Now, in verse 5, a third theme is introduced, one that continues through the Joseph narratives, the theme of God-given prophetic dreams. Joseph, we read, had two dreams, and hearing these dreams was apparently what pushed Joseph's brother's hatred for him over the edge. The dreams indicated Joseph's exaltation over his family in thinly veiled agricultural and astrological symbols but the meaning to his family was obvious. After his first dream, his brothers hated him all the more. After his second dream, even Joseph's father rebuked him. The fact that Jacob rebuked Joseph seems to indicate that Joseph conveyed the dreams arrogantly and deserved a rebuke. Although in many ways, Joseph is a type of Christ, let's remember he certainly was not Christ. He was an imperfect human being. These early verses of Genesis 37 portray him as spoiled and naive at best, or spoiled and arrogant at worst. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told his followers to guard against throwing pearls to pigs. Now, the metaphor teaches that we must be discerning about the people with whom we share truth. One commentator wrote, one must try to discern whether presenting truth, presenting to others that which is holy will elicit nothing but abuse or profanity. In these instances, restraint is required. But I find that restraint's also required at times in sharing our God-given aspirations, our dreams, with other believers. You may be convinced God's put a call on your life or plans to use you in some way that may be difficult for others to embrace. Now, that's not to say we should never share with others the dreams that God's put within us, only that we must be discerning about it. It appears that in sharing his dreams, 
Joseph failed to use discernment. Jacob's favoritism and Joseph's announcement of his dreams set Joseph up for a fall. Verse 11 summarizes, saying that Joseph's brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Next, we learn that Jacob sent Joseph to check on his brothers who were tending the flocks at a distance from their home. His brothers saw him approaching and determined to kill him and throw his body into a cistern. They agreed to cover up their deed by telling their father Joseph was killed by a wild animal. It's clear that Joseph's dreams continued to fuel their hatred of him, for according to verse 20, once they decided to kill him, they said, then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Those dreams were still on their minds. Now, for reasons that aren't given, Reuben, Jacob's oldest son, sought to dissuade his brothers by suggesting an alternative, that they put Joseph alive into an empty cistern. We're told that Reuben planned to return later and bring Joseph safely back to his father. The brothers agreed to take Reuben's suggestion, thinking surely Joseph would eventually die there in the cistern as well. However, Reuben's plan to rescue Joseph was thwarted when a Midianite caravan loaded with goods en route to Egypt passed by. For some reason, Reuben wasn't present at the time. Well, the passing of the caravan, caravan gave Judah an idea, one that, as it turned out, actually saved Joseph's life and was used by God for great good. Rather than leaving Joseph to put perish in the cistern, Judah suggested that they might as well profit from his disappearance by selling him. It's noteworthy that Jacob's sons ultimately ignored the advice of their oldest brother Reuben and listened to Judah, an indication of the leadership role Judah was assuming among them. Now, this is our first introduction to Judah's character, but certainly not the last. As it turns out, Genesis 37 through 40, as I mentioned, actually highlight two of Jacob's sons, not just Joseph, but also Judah. And we're going to learn much more about Judah in chapter 38. Well, Joseph's brothers dipped his robe in goat's blood and took it to their father. Again, another recurring theme emerges, deception. Poor Jacob, he continues to reap the consequences of his own weakness, one his sons had surely observed in him. Jacob refused to be comforted over what he believed to be Joseph's death. And meanwhile, we're told, Joseph arrived safely in Egypt and was sold to one of Pharaoh's officials, a man named Potiphar, the captain of the guard. And with that, chapter 37 ends, leaving us in suspense. You know, one thing is clear enough from this chapter. Joseph's decision to share his dreams had grave consequences. It was high on the list of factors that led to his removal from his father's household. But what his brothers meant for evil, God used for good. Think about it. Had Joseph remained to enjoy the comforts and indulgences granted by his father, he might have become so spoiled and arrogant that he would have been useless to God. Instead, God enrolled Joseph 
in a school of humility as a slave far away from home. Well, what first appears to be an unrelated digression in chapter 38 actually serves to further contrast Joseph and his brothers, whose characters are represented by Judah. The digression also brings Judah into greater focus as the sibling, along with Joseph, who had a significant role in Israel's future, both in the near term and the long and the near term and the long term. Now, beginning in verse one, we learned that in this same extended time period in which Joseph was having his adventures in Egypt, Judah's, Judah left his father's household, and there's no clear explanation about why he did that. Why did he move? Why he moved away? Some have suggested. Maybe Jacob's inconsolability caused the entire family such added suffering that Judah sought to escape. If that was true, well, it turned out, rather than successfully dodging his guilt, Judah's decision to leave led to his guilty, self-serving nature being exposed. So in Judah's new location, we're told that he married a Canaanite woman. This statement was a portent of disaster since the patriarchs had continually warned their sons against intermarriage with Canaanites. In Judah's case, the result was the near ruination of his family. Judah's wife, we're told, bore him three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. When Ur was grown, Judah got a wife for him named Tamar. Shortly after his marriage, Though the Lord put Ur to death, for according to verse 7, he was wicked in the Lord's sight. As a result, Onan, Judah's secondborn, was called upon to perpetuate his brother's family by a custom known as leveret marriage. Onan was to take his dead brother's wife as his own, and the first son she bore him would have been reckoned as belonging to his dead brother with regard to name and inheritance. The child would have cared for his mother as she aged. This custom wasn't unique to Israel, nor did it even find its origins there, but was practiced in different forms in many parts of the ancient world. Now, although the dead brother's family was perpetuated and the widow provided for, in truth there was no direct benefit to the living brother. So Onan was willing to comply for his sexual gratification, but was too selfish to actually be of family assistance. By practicing a form of birth control, he kept Tamar from having children. Therefore, we read, the Lord put him to death also. Since two of Judah's sons died shortly after marrying Tamar, Judah superstitiously considered she might be to blame and refused to give her to his third and only living son. Judah was unwilling to take responsibility for his daughter-in-law, so he sent her back to her father's household in disgrace. He promised to give her Sheila when Sheila was older, but had no intention of actually doing so. <clears throat> Once Tamar saw that she'd not been given to Sheila, she came up with her own plan to procure children. In the interim, it seems Judah had become a widower himself. So Tamar disguised herself as a prostitute 
positioned herself in a place she knew Judah would pass and successfully lured him. Judah propositioned and slept with her without ever discovering her true identity. As collateral until he could send her proper payment, he left her with some personal valuables, items by which he could be identified. Upon his arrival home, he sent his friend with a payment for her, but learned that she was nowhere to be found. Well, rather than continuing the search and risking humiliation, Judah decided to simply let her keep the collateral. But about three months later, Judah learned his daughter-in-law was pregnant. He self-righteously called for the death penalty. And as Tamar was being led out to her death, she quickly sent the message to Judah that she was pregnant by the owner of the items he'd given her. Judah was exposed for his complicity in extramarital sexual relations and his unwillingness to keep his word to his own daughter-in-law and thus provide for her. Judah acknowledged his responsibility for Tamar's desperate measures, stating, She is more righteous than I. Well, Tamar wasn't killed. In fact, she bore twins to Judah, Perez and Zerah. Not until much later in the story of the Bible do we learn the greater significance of this account. For Judah, Tamar, and Perez were all ancestors of Jesus Christ. The positioning of Judah's story in the middle of Joseph's story serves several purposes. First, it shows us how God shaped the characters of two brothers over the same extended period of time, allowing both to suffer humiliation. Second, it highlights the two sons of Jacob who played the most significant roles in Israel's future and in the greater story of the Bible. The descendants of these two brothers later comprised the larger part of the nation of Israel, Judah in the south and the tribes of Joseph in the north. Third, and more importantly, these are the two brothers through whom God's patriarchal promise to bless the world was largely fulfilled. <clears throat> through Joseph, Jacob and the rest of his family, 70 in all, were preserved in Egypt until they grew into a nation. Joseph also became a blessing to his family and the rest of the world by his provision of grain during a severe famine. Through Judah, the entire world has been blessed with the Messiah. Both Judah and Joseph had to be schooled in humility in preparation for God's use of them. Proverbs 11.2 and 18.12 spell out the biblical principle illustrated by these stories. Pride leads to disgrace, but humility results in wisdom and honor. Our first principle comes right out of the Proverbs. Pride leads to disgrace, but humility results in wisdom and honor. Joseph and his brother Judah were both disgraced. Although it's not recorded, we can just imagine the humiliation for Joseph of being displayed for auction as a slave, perhaps stripped and leered at. 
Judah was humiliated when his seal, cord, and staff were presented as evidence that his daughter-in-law resorted to prostitution in order to gain what he owed her. 1 Peter 2 and 4 tell us that there's no glory in suffering that results from our own wrongdoing. We can't claim to be sharing in Christ's sufferings when our trouble is the result of our own folly. Nevertheless, even when we bring suffering on our own heads, the suffering doesn't need to be wasted. The moment we acknowledge our wrongdoing and submit to God, he will use our suffering for our good. Have you found that sometimes God uses the last person we would want him to choose as an instrument to humble us? From Judah's perspective, Tamar was a real sore spot in his life. We can imagine that his guilt over his unfulfilled obligation to her probably led him to wish he could somehow erase the memory of her. How ironic that Tamar became God's instrument in humbling Judah. No one enjoys being humbled, and it's hard to feel good about a person who's being used to humble you. Who exactly is the Lord using to humble you? At times, that person's treatment may be entirely unjust. We may even believe he or she needs humbling more than we do. But if we're wise, we'll see that God intends to use our suffering for our good and his glory, and we will quickly submit ourselves to him and his purposes. Well, according to Genesis 39 and 40, that is exactly what Joseph did. During his years of suffering in Egypt, Joseph repeatedly evidenced a proper fear of the Lord. His suffering was very real, but he trained his eyes on God's greatness rather than on his own suffering. Chapter 39, verse 2 tells us that the Lord prospered Joseph greatly while he served his Egyptian master, Potiphar. <clears throat> Potiphar's household flourished under Joseph's leadership. Here we've got a foretaste of the manner in which Joseph would become a blessing ultimately to all of Egypt. Yes, his humility resulted in wisdom and honor. Now we also learn in verse 6 that Joseph had his mother's good looks, and for this reason, combined no doubt with his success, his master's wife took notice of him. She repeatedly attempted to seduce him. Day after day this went on. Joseph refused her, and when she persisted, he just sought to avoid her altogether. But one day, when no one was around, Potiphar's wife physically grabbed Joseph by the cloak, saying, Come to bed with me. Very wisely sensing the danger, Joseph left his cloak behind and ran out of the house. And you know, when temptation becomes too strong, physically removing ourselves from it may be our best recourse. One cannot help but contrast Joseph's resistance of sexual temptation to Judah's indulgence of it. Joseph could have rationalized a relationship with Potiphar's wife. Instead, he showed he feared the Lord. Four times in chapter 39, we're told the Lord was with Joseph. 
Joseph must have been greatly encouraged by a sense of the Lord's presence. In fact, his implied intimacy with the Lord was likely what enabled him to resist the temptation. Have you noticed that people respond to suffering in one of two ways? Either they resent it and grow bitter, or they humble themselves and grow in grace. Joseph's refusal to take shortcuts to personal pleasure proves his willingness to be humbled. The master's wife came up with a story to implicate Joseph, claiming he'd tried to rape her and left his cloak behind when she screamed for help. Not surprisingly, Potiphar was angry when he heard his wife's story, but it's possible he knew her well enough to suspect her duplicity. Regardless, he couldn't ignore his wife's charges. His confinement of Joseph with the king's prisoners represents a moderate punishment compared to what the law of the land allowed. Most likely, he didn't really trust the accuracy of his wife's story. In verse 21 of chapter 39, we again read that the Lord was with Joseph. God granted him the same success in the prison he had while serving Potiphar, and he was once again promoted. The warden put him in charge of all the prisoners. God allowed Joseph's trials to shape his character, turning every difficulty toward his good end. In addition to developing humility and other character qualities through the positions of leadership, Joseph was also learning to administrate. And as part of this, most certainly, greater discernment about when to speak and when to keep his mouth shut. Pretty essential in preparing him to rule Egypt. But just because Joseph was successful doesn't mean he wasn't still suffering. According to chapter 40, sometime during Joseph's imprisonment, Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and chief baker displeased him and were put in custody where Joseph was confined. Each of these men's had a dr- men had a dream that left them troubled. Joseph inquired about their sad state, and when he learned that they'd each had a perplexing dream, he asked them to tell him his dreams, confident, as he said in verse 8, that interpretations belong to God. Both men had dreams that seemingly could have had the same interpretation. However, Joseph interpreted the chief cupbearer's dream as indicating that he would be restored to his position within three days, while interpreting the baker's dream as indicating that he would be executed within three days. Joseph pled with Pharaoh's cupbearer to intercede with him with Pharaoh once he was released. It turns out that both dreams were fulfilled exactly as Joseph interpreted them. Surely this encouraged Joseph to expect God to fulfill his own dreams, those dreams he'd shared with his family so many years ago. He expected, surely expected God would fulfill those dreams as well. But shockingly, we learn at the end of the chapter that after the chief cupbearer was released, he completely forgot about Joseph. The Lord 
was indeed preparing Joseph for the greatness his dreams foretold. The text repeatedly indicates that throughout prolonged period of suffering, his prolonged period of suffering and, and humiliation, Joseph demonstrated integrity and faithfulness. We also see his high view of God, believing that honoring God was of far greater importance than a moment's pleasure in sin, and recognizing God as the giver and interpreter of dreams. In fact, as we read Joseph's story, it not only becomes obvious to us that God was providentially overseeing Joseph's circumstances, but we increasingly sense that Joseph believed this to be true himself. The depth of Joseph's sufferings during these years isn't disclosed fully until after his trials ended. Later in Genesis, we'll read that Joseph's brother saw how deeply he was distressed and how he begged for his life when they plotted against him. We'll also learn that Joseph had sons born to him in Egypt, whose names are very telling about the depth of his suffering. Joseph's suffering was real. It was intense. And it was unjust. But he trusted God in it. He experienced victory in his suffering by training his eyes on God's greatness rather than focusing on his own misery. That sounds like a principle I need to remember. Victory is gained in suffering by focusing on God's greatness rather than on my own misery. What is holding a high view of God anyway? It involves focusing on the magnitude of his character. You're, you know, we're never at risk of thinking too highly of God. And one of the best ways to raise our view of him is to praise him in our difficulties, naming and delighting in his qualities, his attributes of wisdom and mercy, sovereignty, unchangeableness and love and others in prayer and as we speak with others. This causes our problems to seem small in consideration of his greatness. Someone once said, big problems, small God. Big God, small problems. As our view of God is raised, we come to realize that he is more involved, more sovereign, more powerful, and so much more loving than we previously imagined. As a result, we'll act in greater faith and greater dependence on him. Do your circumstances dictate your view of God? Or does your view of God dictate your attitude in your circumstances? Paul wrote to Christians suffering in the first century, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. You see, the truth is, Sometimes Christians do act surprised by suffering, seeing it as some really unusual misfortune. 
but we're to expect to suffer. Even Christ suffered. How do you view suffering? Do you avoid it at the cost of obedience to Christ? Do you only pray that God will remove your suffering? Or do you also ask him to change your attitude toward it? God used Joseph's suffering to prepare him for greatness. Will you waste your suffering by whining and complaining your way through it? Or will you train your eyes on God and believe he's using it for your good and his glory?